1: Hello
2: and welcome to the Keeper Cup Podcast. I'm Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. Very excited to be back with you. We are recording on Thanksgiving Eve. It is, I guess it's really, I don't know, the day before Thanksgiving is still Thanksgiving Eve, even if it's before eight in the morning for me, before noon for you. So we'll still call it Thanksgiving Eve. You got big plans for Thanksgiving?
1: Uh, I... I Big plans? No, it's gonna be a pretty typical one. Spent with uh, family, both the in laws and and my parents. My brother's back in town. He lives in New York City, so it'll be pretty standard. We're having a heated debate in my uh, work text chat though about the best Thanksgiving like sides. There, were, so fantasy baseball today posted this, or it was fantasy football today posted this, like you know those like graphs where like make or, your meal like for twenty bucks. Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah. That, that, exactly, and it's getting pretty heated in there. <laughs> what what what's your take? what's the best side? so the best side if, if it's done correctly, like it has to be done very well, can't be from the box is stuffing and honestly, I don't really think it's that close i so
2: I was super excited
1: to have a debate about this. I
2: was like we're gonna we're gonna burn ten minutes of this podcast just arguing, but i I agree <laughs> stuffing's the best, yeah, it has to be done right, but yeah. when it is
1: like you can't, you literally
2: can't beat that the the other thing I think I was agree about stuffing is like there are multiple versions of done right. Like I've had a sure. great cornbread stuffing. I went, we went a couple of years ago to some family in LA and there's someone there who makes this like sausage stuffing. That yeah. is incredible. That's my in-laws do. Yeah. Um, and the, the family tradition of my house is a rye bread stuffing. Okay. Which is sort of random. And it's a, it's a sort of a creative, like a, just a funny story that years ago, my grandmother, my, you know, from a Jewish family, nice Jewish home. She always has rye bread around because you can't have a Jewish home without rye bread around. She got ready to make the (laughs) stuffing one year and realized she didn't have the bread she wanted to make the stuffing. Couldn't get to a store to get anything else. And so it was like, well, I guess I'm just using this rye bread. And (laughs) it was a hit. And so basically my entire life, rye bread stuffing's been the the go-to. So my mom's making the stuffing this year. I'm responsible for potatoes, making the mashed potatoes.
1: Nice good for you I, they, I don't get a responsibility so like I, I'm useless <laughs> in the kitchen and I, I think everybody knows that I were I used to work at a fish market really quick and uh, we we were understaffed normally I'd work the front I take orders stuff like that it doubled as a restaurant that's important context here and we got this crazy lunch rush and uh, I was sent into the kitchen they were like look we just need some help and so they handed me a roll and they were like cut the roll for a sandwich literally first roll I was given to take the knife I sliced my hand wide open there's blood everywhere all over the rolls and they're like just get out go back to the front it was it was a disaster so my experience in the kitchen is extremely limited and violent that's uh that's super unpleasant yeah <laughs> i uh
2: yeah i haven't i haven't worked in a kitchen um i worked at a panera bread in high school but i mostly made sandwiches without you didn't have to like there was no cutting there was no cooking it was just like very safe. Put the turkey on the bread, wrap <laughs> it up. Um but I do all the cooking in my house. I'm I'm the the primary wow, primary for chef for the family. So man uh, of many skills. Yeah, you know. This year, actually the having just the potatoes this year is a it's a light year for me. In the past okay. like we've hosted and I've done like the turkey and the stuffing and this year I'm just taking it easy, making potatoes, leaving it at that. Good for you, man. But we're not really here to talk about potatoes or stuffing or turkey <laughs> or traumatic incidents from Pete's youth, uh, but we are here to talk about all sorts of stuff going on in the world of baseball, and we've got a number of things we want to talk about, but I think where we want to start, uh, if you follow us on Twitter, um, we have been working on a mock auto new auctions. There's all these mock drafts. And now we're starting to get into actual drafts that are going on. They're so different, especially mock drafts. That, like They're so different from any keeper league. Uh, and they're certainly different from an auction because the strategies are so different and they are different from auto new because the values are different. And so we wanted to pull together a mock auction for auto new. We're doing it on uh, couch managers. That auction's been going on for, I don't know, a week and a half now, I think. And we're about a quarter of the way through it, 123 players out of the 480. So by the time this thing posts on Monday, um, hopefully we'll be closer to like the halfway point, but there'll still be time for you to follow along. So we'll throw a link to that up in the show notes. But I think the auction has been really interesting. The goal of this was start to get some real data uh, on how people are behaving in our new auctions. We've got a great Great group of managers participating in this. Pete's got a team. I've got a team. Uh, Mark McElroy, who was on our show uh, two weeks ago to talk about arbitration, has a team. Adam Howe, Dave Swan uh, are both other pitcher list writers who have played Otter New and know the space real well. We've got Niv Shah, who's the creator of Otter New. We've got a couple other um, Otter New experts, I'll call them, in. Uh, We've got the two guys like there's uh, two teams being co-managed one by a couple of guys who have who've run out of new teams for years, one by the two guys who were the finalists for the auto new prestige league this year. Uh, Justin Vibber who runs the surplus calculator for those of you who play out new, he's in here. You know, from from the athletic is in here. Um, I should have read this in order because now I can't remember who I've at- mentioned and who I haven't, but it's a good list of strong managers who know what they're doing uh, and we're getting some really interesting results, I think. I think we're getting some good
1: some good data and some good stuff to talk about. Yeah, we definitely are. i my approach to this was to be kind of aggressive on my guys. and I think it's important to me be upfront about this. This is my first auction from scratch in honestly, probably like eight or nine years. Um, my only experience with that was with through ESPN auction drafts where, I think you get like two hundred sixty dollars. So this is even different than that because you know not only is the scoring different, um, but also you know we get four hundred dollars front in a much larger roster. So wasn't really sure how to approach it. I just knew there were going to be guys that I wanted to get, and I've been pretty aggressive on them. But it's been awesome, and I'm learning a lot through this experience.
2: Yeah, I think you're not the only one who went with a, an aggressive approach. I mean, I think that if I if I pull up our Auction results so far, and look at, for example, shortstop, just as a, a good example. There's some some decent values down the chain. I, I was pretty happy with a twenty three dollar Francisco Lindor. Um, there's a twenty one dollar Trevor Story, which maybe makes that Lindor not look that exciting. But the first shortstop off the board, not surprisingly, I guess, was Fernando Tatis Jr. at fifty seven dollars. And like, I get it; he is an absolute star. But nobody else went over 41. That's Trey Turner at 41, Corey Seegers at 39, Bo Bichette at 37. I, it just seems crazy to me that like, instead of Tatis, you could have had Carlos Correa and Trevor Story to fill your shortstop in middle infield and had an
1: extra $3 left over. Um, and that's not the only position where I think that happened. No, it's definitely not. I mean, I, when we were talking earlier, I gave you the example of, and and I don't, I don't want to come across as knocking people's picks. I mean, as we begin, or or I guess I should say bids, because as we get into mine, there's certainly at least one move that I really regretted, but I was able to get both Lance Lynn and Brandon Woodruff, who Woodruff I view as just as much of a bona fide ace as maybe any other name on the board and Lynn coming off a, a slew of three straight awesome seasons for $1 more than just Garrett Cole. And we all know the second half that Garrett Cole had. So it was weird. You're right. It was extremely, extremely top heavy so far anyway.
2: Yeah. And I think part of this is early on in this, You know, it's it's a slow draft. So we're doing it as a slow auction. For those who haven't done a slow auction before, guys are up for bid for like 12 hours. And if there's a new, like if somebody passes the leading bidder, it resets to eight hours. So guys can be up there for a long time. And that does lead to some high prices at the top end because you get you get 12 hours to sit there and look at a $50 tatis and say, ah, maybe I could go to 51. Oh, maybe I could go to 52. And it so I get why that happens. Um, but it definitely seems to be the case that, you know, I, I think one of those those important lessons for any auction is feel out the room a little bit, right? You want to make sure that you know sort of what's gonna happen and I do wonder if part of what happened in this one is you got a lot of experienced auto new managers who have been through a lot of auctions, and once you get out of those first year auctions, right? This is effectively a first year auction. It's a nobody started with keepers or anything like that. Once you get out of first year auctions, you start getting inflation in there and stuff. If a guy like Tatis is available, they go for sixty bucks because there just aren't stars like that available usually, and. So I, I do wonder if part of what happened here was people were just like, man, if I were in my league auction, I could get Tatis for 57, I'd be thrilled. And so they went after Tatis for 57. And then they were like, well, if I were in my league auction, I would go after, you know, using your example, Vlad for 62, I think is what you paid for for Vlad, right? 63. I think it was 63. Or no, 62. It was 62. a lot, whatever 62. it was. And and that seems totally reasonable in the context of a a long time league but it's not necessarily the best price in a first year league. And I did the same thing at first base. Actually, let's, let's, let's turn to first base. Cause I think one of the, so one of the lessons here is a very clear, like, you know, take your time, feel out what's going on in the league, make sure you know what's going on because there could be values early, values late. The other, one of the things that that jumped out at me was I wish I had waited on first base. I did the exact opposite of waiting on first base. I jumped at two early first basemen. Um, I'm not even unhappy with him, but Vlad was the first first baseman to go off the board. You did get him at 62. Totally reasonable to, to go that high given, given what he's capable of. I got Freddie Freeman for 46. and I was like, for 16 bucks less than Vlad, I'm very happy to have Freeman at that price. The next third baseman I picked up was Matt Olson at $35. I have Olson as the third third baseman on my board in this league. So I think he's like, I'm very, again, I was like, oh, if I have to pay, you know, if Vlad costs 62, I'm happy with Freeman at 46. If Freeman costs 46, I'm happy with Olson at 35. But then Pete Alonzo, who I have pretty close to Olson, went for 28. And then you get like, Jose Abreu, who I'm not a huge fan of, was the next sort of pure first baseman. He went at 21. Paul Goldschmidt at 20. Uh, Brandon Belt at 13. Joey Votto at 12. It's like... And then Nate Lowe, who is, you know, not
1: exciting, but solid at three. It's like these first base price is like i wish i'd waited i i kind of put the blinders on when it came to vlad because i knew i just really wanted him in this particular format um you know i'm reading your write-ups and i would encourage anybody to read uh the twitter write-ups the chat is doing for each one of these picks it's giving me a lot of context a lot of good information uh and, and i think you referred to soto as like unquestionably the best player in the format and given that it's five outfielders i agree but Man, looking at Aught new fan points, settings and having played through it, if I don't have Juan Soto, I want Vlad Jr. I like to me, those guys are one and two. So, you know, looking at the later prices, especially your Freeman, because I think if anybody at first base obviously has that Vlad like upside, it's him. But like the idea of having a guy who could hit 330 with 40 homers in this format with a with an elite walk rate like whoa I mean I, that's that's like an all-timer player factor in that obviously it's a keeper setting even though who knows I'd be who knows how long I'd be keeping him for at this price he's so so good uh, I just I had to have him yeah I, I don't think it's a bad price at all I it, it's more than I was
2: willing to go for him just given the other options at first base but I, I agree with what you're saying I I do think Soto is far and away the best player in this format I think his the 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 particular skill set he brings, coupled with the depth at outfield, I think does put him over the top. But yeah, Vlad is number two, right? And and the fact is, they were the two highest priced players in this auction, as they should be. And so, like that, all makes sense. I and mean, if we go look at from from top down for everybody, there's a oh they're not the top two. I made a mistake here. There's a seventy five dollar Soto, a sixty four dollar Mike Trout, and then a sixty two dollar Vlad. Then Otani at fifty eight and the uh, Tatis at fifty seven. We mentioned before Bryce Harper at fifty four, Ronald Acuna at fifty. That's the full list of guys who went over fifty dollars. Like I can't really quibble with any of those. I think Trout may be the the toughest one, only because man, I calves scare me. Um, it, it, you know, Donaldson missed a bunch of time and really sort of struggled to come back and. Now he seems to be back. He played well last year, but now he's getting older. And just I worry that Trout. I worry about it lingering. I worry about it recurring. I, you know, but if Trout is healthy and plays a full season, like,
1: then that's going to look like a steal. I guess with Trout, it's it's because Donaldson's the prime example, right? But but Trout is a little bit younger, and I obviously he's a lot younger. I think he's just turning thirty now. But the fact that they they were like, you know what, we're not going anywhere. Like, just stay out. I mean, Trout played, what, a month last year? That's a lot of time to let that calf recover. I mean, the guy already is a mutant. So factor in the rest and and everything else. Like He's obviously missed a lot of time over the last few years. He's an injury-prone player. On the flip side of that, he does profile, obviously, similarly to the Soto, to the Vlad types in this particular format. The elite walk rate, obviously, hits for a lot of power, can hit for a high average, although I guess I'd be surprised at this point to see it too high. But I, I understand Trout that high, but I would agree of of all those names, he's one maybe the one to quibble with a little bit. The crazy thing with Trout is yes, he only played thirty-six games last year. So it's a small sample.
2: Had he continued at the pace he was at, he would have had the highest WOBA of his career. He had a four fifty one WOBA last year in that 36 game stretch. 2018 he had a four forty seven. That's his his career high so far. So I do think it's worth noting that the calf injury is a concern. The fact that like he played 53 games last year in the shortened season, which it's hard to know what to make of that. Like, is that like missing 20 games or is that like missing seven games? But he missed seven games in a shortened season, 134 the year before that, 140 the year before that, 114 the year before that, before that he was 159, 159, 157, 157. But like, we're now going back to 2007. 2016 was the last time he played more than 140 games in a season. So you, you sort of got to count on him missing some time, but he's not aging from a productivity standpoint. Like his production, I mean, his, even if you forget his 2021 because it was so short, his three best seasons by Woba are 2018, 2017, and 2019. So like three of his four most recent years are the best years of his career. So I yeah, I totally get the upside on Trout. And I think the the thing the thing that stands out to me with Trout, you talk about it being a keeper format, is if Trout is as good as he can be and plays a solid 140, 150 games, he's probably a 70 plus dollar player. Then you start adding in Inflation in subsequent years of the league, and he becomes maybe a seventy-five dollar player, and all of a sudden the sixty-four dollar price, there's big upside in it. Uh, that same team, by the way, also spent fifty dollars on Acuna. Wow! And it's it's a similar situation where, like, I don't think it's likely that Acuna is a fifty-dollar player this year. I think he's going to miss time. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how quickly he'll get fully back up to speed. But do I feel pretty good about a fifty-two dollar Acuna going into the next season? Yeah. And so that team may be, you know, they may be putting themselves in a position to struggle a little bit this year if those guys miss time. Um, but they are putting themselves in a real good position for the for the future.
1: So Yeah. Something else I'd say about Trout is that going into this year, if with all that time off, if we're thinking like, oh wow, he's healthy now and and like, you know, maybe he's he's gonna put forward his most healthy season in a long time, well, all of a sudden he's got Otani presumably Rendon healthy. I know obviously Rendon had a brutal year last year, but this is probably the best lineup that Mike Trout has had in his career. So the idea of him finally being healthy, well rested and going into a lineup where he's going to have Shohei Otani around him, that is super enticing. And I just, it's obviously any format's great for Mike Trout, but particularly this one. So the more we talk about it, I, I kind of like price uh, Trout at this price point.
2: Yeah, that team, by the way, that has Trout and Acuna, they're other players so far. They're up They've got, let's see, they've got Trout Acuna, a $31 Xander Bogarts, a $21 Cody Bellinger, an $18 Nolan Arenado, a $16 Bobby Witt Jr., a $14 Nelson Cruz, and then they're pitching, they've got a $30 Shane Bieber and a $3 Garrett Whitlock. And so if you talk about a, a strategy, I mean, Trout coming off injury, probably a buy low. Acuna coming off injury, probably lower price than he would be if he were fully healthy. Bogart's no issue there, but I do think he's sort of underpriced here. Bieber coming off injury, probably lower price than if he'd been healthy. Cody Bellinger coming off a down year, certainly lower price than he would be if he had performed. Nolan Arenado coming off probably the worst year of his career. And so his price is a little bit down. Bobby Witt. You know, might be the last chance to buy in on him for a reasonable price if he performs the way he should. Nelson Cruz, perennially underpriced and underdrafted, just because he's old in a DH. And then Garrett Whitlock, who at three dollars is just Garrett Whitlock is worth more than three dollars. So they've done a really nice job. Um, this team is run by a couple of guys from the the Auto New Slack community. These guys have been managing Auto New teams for a long time. Uh, Joe Katz and the other guy goes by Saber Magician. Um, and they're, they're clearly buying low across the board. That's like, it, it seems to be a pretty clear strategy that's risky, right? For, for year one, for the 2022 season, that's risky. Cause if Trout misses time, if Acuna misses time, if Bieber's still getting back up to speed, if Bellinger doesn't get back to form, if Arenado is just in decline, if Witt doesn't hit, like you get a whole litany of risks with all these guys. But if let's say half those guys perform the way you want. And then you go and you start building around them for 2023, man, they're going to be in a good position for that, that time period. And if, and if they're right, and these guys all perform, then they're going to be in a good position this year.
1: Yeah. I think on an individual basis, I mean, I have a lot of feelings about this team, like certain picks. I love certain ones. I'm like, oh, that's a little aggressive, but I think the one that sticks out is the Nolan Arenado for $18. I mean, with how much we've, we've spent talking about third base and I don't really want to go down that hole again, seeing arenado last year like yes he clearly took a step back he clearly was not in cores anymore but he still had a really productive season and it's not like he's some old man 18 dollars that feels like an absolute steal so you're right a lot of it does feel like buy lows but that one in particular definitely stands out to me
2: so i do want to go down the third base hole again because i think we've got some interesting data from this <laughs> mock and, and arenado a nice uh a, a nice transition into that and and part of that is I don't think that's that great a price in Arenado. I think it's a fine price. I have no problem with that price. But there are real concerns for me in his profile. And I'm not... um, It's not a Coors thing, right? I think like one of the reactions we got in the Auto News Slack from somebody who saw that price was like, oh, wow, that's a big like post-Coors discount. And I was like, I don't think that's what it is. I think that he's he's not the player he was before. Um, And give me one second here because I'm trying to pull up. So Pete mentioned before, I'm doing a tweet stream, a tweet thread. I have sent out a single tweet for every single player taken so far. I'm falling a little behind. I got to catch up. Um, But I'm just sort of getting some some notes down. And these are, for me, sort of early off-season notes. I'm still sort of thinking through guys. This is as much a like, double checking my thinking as anything else, but, um, yeah. So looking at, at Arenado at $18, like his steamer projection, which is the only projection we really have right now, just sort of matches an $18 price. His last two years, he has a three twenty nine Woba. The, like I actually think in some ways the projection is, is positive for him and that it's, it's expecting his walks to go back up a bit. Um, but like he's not hitting the ball the way he used to, his barrels are way down, uh, despite the fact that the league has been up on Statcast data over the last year. Right, this this last year was like the highest year ever for barrel rate, for exit velocity, for max exit velocity, and, and Arenado was moving the other direction. He's now gone about a thousand consecutive plate appearances with a BAP at below 260, uh, which I think is tied to the the lowering sort of Statcast numbers. And so I'm sort of, I'm not out on Arenado. The guy's incredibly talented. I don't think he's
1: done, but I don't think $18 is some like crazy value for him. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's definitely a concern. I mean, we, we knew this was coming, right? When he left Coors, that there would be some sort of adjustment. And and if I'm being honest with myself, I definitely undersold it. I just thought Arenado elite hitter, it's not going to be a problem. But I will say he, he adjusted very well. Um, His fly ball rate was way up than his career from his career average. I just had it in front of me and I'm going to continue to just fill words until I there. It is 32.7% fly ball rate, which is way above where. So for reference in 2020, that was 23.5. And you combine that with how much he pulled the ball, which was more than ever before. He pulled the ball 45.8% of the time which if we wanted to compare that to the short in 2020 was 39.8. And then you look at his spray chart, every single one of every single one of his home runs was pulled. So if he's kind of becoming the, I don't know, what was it? 2018 version of Alex Bregman. I, I like, I still like the tools. The lineup's definitely not great, but he's still got Goldschmidt. So, and I think part of it too, not to keep piling on with Arenado here was I was comparing it to the other prices and I saw, well, Alex Bregman is also coming off a bad season and went for $14 more. And Anthony Rendon was coming off a much worse season than Nolan Arenado, and he went for $3 or $4 more. So what's so wrong with Arenado? And, and you know, at least in Bregman's case, play discipline and age factor in for sure. And I love Alex Bregman, but I, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not going to be super in on Arenado this year, contrary to the way I'm sounding, but I do kind of like the way he adjusted last year. To bring it back to third base, though, I mean, I, I find my I found myself in a little bit of a... I guess a good problem to have, but this is not the way I drew it up, Chad. If you're looking at my team there, yeah, I mean, I think the the thing with Aaron,
2: yeah, I, I should say, I don't disagree that Arenado, given the other prices, is fine. I'm 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 totally fine with that. I think the thing, and we'll talk a little bit about your team in a moment, but I think the thing that stands out to me when I look at third base is like looking at the prices from top to bottom. Jose Ramirez went for forty five dollars. Rafael Devers went for $40. Manny Machado went for $37. Those are all high prices. I think Machado is probably a little bit too close to the other two, a little bit, um, because I just don't think he's quite in their class. But I also think like Ramirez is an MVP caliber bat, has been for years, is I think still somehow criminally underrated. Devers, I was down in Devers last year. You know that. I will admit that I was wrong. He was incredible. Machado is a solid, consistent performer. I, I have no problem with Machado. But then the next third baseman was Alex Bregman at $32. That could be a great value, but he's been really bad for a little while now. $27 Austin Riley, which gets to your team situation, which we'll talk about in a minute, is a, a high price for a guy with a pretty short track record. I think it's probably a fine price, but it's it's up there. Chris Bryan at $23. Um, Again, Fine, but he's been up and down. Rendon, twenty one dollars, but he was bad last year. Donaldson at nineteen dollars. That's my purchase was is had injury issues. Is older, has struggled at times. Arenado at eighteen dollars. Already talked about Yomankata at uh, fourteen dollars. Has was had no power this year. I mean, it just gets. It gets sort of ugly. I think the the first sort of value I really see at third base is getting down to Justin Turner at twelve dollars. I think it's just underpriced, but he's getting up there in age and has missed some time. And then you've got an eleven dollar Ke'Bryan Hayes, who I love Ke'Bryan Hayes. I think that there's there's a ton of potential there, but you're paying for you're you're paying for more than he is. I think projected to do if you're paying from an eleven dollars, you're paying something for that that breakout potential, which is fine to do. But like, I don't know, after those top three, who do you really feel good about in terms of like, this guy is worth the price, locked in, will be my starter, I can play them for every game they're out there, and I'll, it'll be, I'll be good to go. I don't know if there's anyone I feel good about.
1: I guess the only one that comes close, and this is going to make me sound like an idiot because I bought the other guy in Austin Riley, but the only one that really comes close for me in this particular setting is Bregman. I think, first of all, he's done it before. The pedigree's there. It's a perfect park for him. We don't need to go down the Alex Bregman, you know, rabbit hole. We've we've done this before, but he's the one guy I look at that price and I say, you know what, he could easily outperform that. Like what it, it would be surprising, but would it be fully shocking if Alex Bregman outperformed Rafael Devers and Manny Machado mm-hmm. in twenty twenty two? I don't think so. I think he's awesome. So and, and you brought this up too, because we were having a conversation about Bregman and I was trying to figure out what to do with him in our in our league. Uh, and I'm I'm not completely sure yet because I have a very expensive, I have a $35 Alex Bregman, but I think about how shallow third base is. And I was like, oh, he had wrist surgery, but he made a great point. Maybe that wrist surgery fixed him <laughs> and we're going to get Alex Bregman back. So like, I look at that one and I say, if there's one third baseman after those top three who I'm like, you know what, let's get behind this guy. He, he could outperform his, his price. It's, it's Alex Bregman.
2: Yeah. I have no problem with that. I just, I still think that It's not that I don't think, like, yes, he could outperform his price. Yes, I think he is probably the best candidate among the other third basemen to end up in that top three, to pass one or more of those guys. There's also a chance that he's just sort of who he's been the last couple of years, and that's not that exciting. And so he could be a vast overpay too. And so I think my my bigger thing with third base isn't that there isn't, I mean, let's put it this way. If we fast forward a year from now, and you tell me that third base turned out to be about the deepest position in baseball, that Ramirez, Devers, Machado, Bregman, Riley, Bryant, Rendon, Donaldson, Arenado, Mancada had a power outbreak, Turner continued to perform despite his age, Hayes broke out—like, if you told me all of that happened, not none of like that as a group would be surprising, but there is no individual item in that list where I'd be like, "No, that can't happen." So there's plenty of options. There's plenty of third basemen I'd be interested to have, but they're getting it. They're, they're they're going for high prices. You're baking in a lot of that upside into the price because there's no solid options, right? Like what I like to be able to do is buy. Think about like CJ Crone at first base last year, where you could buy in pretty cheap because of the upside, but you didn't have to buy him as your starting first baseman. In a draft, and an auction, anything, you bought someone else as your starter, and then you would crone, and it was like, if he breaks out, great, I've got a great utility. If he doesn't, so be it. I feel like with these third basemen, you're being asked to pay for starter-level prices for guys that I'm just not – I just don't want to rely
1: on. That's totally fair, and I, I think it's time to now dive into the decision I made with my two third basemen here because on one hand – so I started with Austin Riley, and that was the problem. Austin Riley came up and I was like, I I'm not going to get caught being the guy who ends up with a bad third baseman, especially in a format like this. I'm going to bid up on Austin Riley. I'm going to get Austin Riley. Um, I ended up getting him for $27, which for one season of success is incredibly pricey, but it was also a really good season. Like, and, and it was a season you could see coming. Right. I mean,
2: I, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before, but I, that was The article I wrote about him before last season was basically like, this is the blueprint for Austin Riley to break out, and then he did it. And so, I'm, yes, it is a high price to pay for one season of success, but it's real different to buy in on like, there's a clear path to success here, and then he follows it, right? It's the same reason that people are going to pay high prices for like breakout starting pitchers who add velocity and stuff. It's like, well, when you see why it happened and you can believe in
1: why it happened, that's when you pay for it. Exactly, and he's he's still so young that like if this league were to be played out, even if he had took a little bit of a step back, I'd probably still be comfortable comfortable keeping him at twenty nine dollars. And and so there's some long term value there. But then I there was Manny Machado, and I looked at the price that Devers went for, and I'm thinking like, all right, I'm going to bid Machado up here, uh, and I tried to, and I ended up with him. Which at first I was like, ah, oh, that kind of stinks. I shouldn't have done that. I would much rather just have Machado at thirty seven and not have bid on on Riley then I was looking around, like I looked at your team. I said, you know what? Chad was fine filling first base and utility with two awesome players. And I look at both Austin Riley and Manny Machado and I say, I'm very happy with these two players. I like these two guys. Maybe I paid up a little bit to get them, but that also has now thinned out the third base market. So people who haven't got theirs yet are going to have to pay up even more. And I think we saw that with a lot of the prices that were paid. So I'm not trying to credit myself as some tactical genius because that it, it blew up in my face in a way. But I'm still kind of actually pretty happy with, with both Manny Machado and Austin Riley. Even given they're slightly expensive, Yeah, I think that's stocks. and that's the way you have to handle an auction like this, especially a first year
2: auction. So one of the th- one of the things that's different about a first year auction when you don't have, you don't have a base to start with, right? So when you go into an auction in year five of a league or something like that, especially in auto new where people are keeping twenty five, sometimes thirty players, like you've got most of your lineup filled out. You only have a couple of things you need to fill. There's only so many players available. And so the strategy is very different. I think in a first year auction like this, like you've got to go pay prices that you think are fair for players and then work things out later because you, you just, it's, it's too hard to, it's too hard to look at a 40 man roster that is completely empty and have this like, Oh, well, if I pay for Riley, I might miss out on this guy. Like just, you get the guys that you think are good values. You piece it together And I would say it was after my first like four or five guys that I sat down and then I put together like a budget for the rest of my team. Then I started to think about like, okay, now that I've spent $81 on first base and util between Freeman and Olsen, like I can't spend on another first baseman. I need to save some money for other positions. Like how is this all going to fit together? And so I think the way you handle it is I think the right
1: way to do it. I mean, I think it makes total sense. It does make it – It does make it a little hard in the short term, right? Because once you do that and then you see players come available, you're like, maybe I need to sit a couple of rounds out here, see how things kind of shake out before I start going in on players. Um, But then guys who I like started coming up. And and so now all of a sudden I'm I'm starting to fill up my roster. I'm still in the lower end in terms of um, how many players I actually have on my team right now. I only have, I want to say eight guys and most people are above that, but I still get $157 to work with. So I feel like I can fill that out despite the. Double expensive third base.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think we should jump over look at pitchers a little bit because I think there's some interesting pitcher prices. Um, I'm gonna just throw some names out there that that the the prices impressed or surprised me in some way, um, and you can you can respond. But uh, I'll start off by just reading the five highest price pitchers were Degrom at 49, Garrett Cole at 49, Corbin Burns at 44, Walker Buehler at 41, and Max Scherzer at 38. Scherzer was my purchase. I don't usually play at that end of the pitching pool, but I thought that was a good value for Scherzer. I'm sort of curious. So you're of the two of us, you're the pitching guy on this show. So did I, did I (laughs) blow my budget on Scherzer? Was that a mistake?
1: I mean, uh, no. For, so first of all, no. Right. Because I, I, it's hard for me to say that anything over $40 is blowing a budget. Right. Because I, I feel like, you know, you commit to Vlad Jr. at 62 or something like that. Like, that's a huge investment. Now you've really got to figure things out. If that blows up in my face, that's almost, you know, an eight. It's over an eighth of my entire budget. But Scherzer at 38, I feel is pretty good value. I just... I hate to say he's he's aging. It's such an easy thing to say, and we say it every year, and he's a perennial Cy Young candidate. He's a Hall of Famer. He's awesome, and he was awesome last year. It was one of his best seasons, but the fact that he once again ended the season with injury just has me a little bit concerned, especially when we're looking to fill volume. At the same time, him at the end of that list of five names, first of all, he probably should be, given his age. But you got him for 38, and Cole went for 49. Not to keep bringing up Cole, I feel like you, you you still got pretty good value there. I will say, not to make it all about my team, hearing those five names and those prices made me feel really good about Brandon Woodruff at 34.
2: Yeah, Woodruff at 34, looking at the guys that were sort of the next set of guys who who were still above 30, let's say. You've got Wheeler and Woodruff are both 34, Aaron Knoll at 32, and then the guy who stood out to me in that $30 range is Shane Bieber at 30, who yes, he's coming off an injury season. I know there were some questions about spin rate and velocity and those couple of sort of abbreviated starts he had at the end of the year. The last time we saw this guy actually pitching, he was maybe the best pitcher in baseball. Well, maybe the best pitcher in baseball, not named Jacob, <laughs> I guess I'll say. Um, but yeah. but Goes without saying. in that In that category, right? I mean, you know. A year ago in this draft, you would have had DeGrom and Cole at 49, just like they went here. You probably would have had DeGrom at 55 and Cole at 49, but Bieber would have been next on that list. And now all of a sudden he's like ninth on that list and at 30 bucks. And like, I, I get that, you know, people expect big things from Nola this year after, you know, sort of a weird season he had this year. Um, I, You know, there's questions about Scherzer. There's questions about Bueller. I think as well. Like, I'm just surprised. Like to me, in retrospect, I would I would much rather have a $30 Bieber than a $38 Scherzer.
1: Let me let me plant an aggressive flag here on November 20. What is it? November? I don't know what it is. November 20 something, the day before Thanksgiving. Shane Bieber is still a top seven pitcher in baseball is that too is that aggressive is that not aggressive enough i don't know if that's a hot take but like so i i was on on the corner with nick pollock t- talking about my mock draft it's going to come out sometime in december and then i was also listening to nick on fantasy baseball today he was a guest a couple of weeks ago or last week something like that and he was talking about and it's concerning and because nick knows his pitching better than anybody and he was talking about like the two appearances i think it yeah. was two chad right that he made when he came back. And he was like, he just didn't look like himself, he couldn't locate his fastball, so on and so forth. And that's obviously concerning, especially when it's coming from Nick. But it's it was six and two-thirds innings pitched, I think. I, and I couldn't be more with you. Like, if if this was last year, I am actually betting in this particular format, Shane Bieber's going for more than Garrett Cole. And and we're looking at him as as like we were a top two, top three starting pitcher. So $30 does really feel like a bargain for Shane Bieber. Obviously, it was a shoulder. It was a strange shoulder, which is super concerning. But, like, what at what point are we just going to accept that Cleveland churns out pitchers and that Shane Bieber is a stud? And if, if last year's injury plague season is enough to get people to be so scared of him that they're going to pay more for, I don't know, I, 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 you brought up Aaron Nola. I do really like Aaron Nola, but I'll go ahead and say it. I'd rather have Shane Bieber than Aaron Nola. Then I'm going to have Bieber everywhere this year i will be if if he's going in the fourth fifth round or if he's going for thirty dollars in auctions i will gladly have Shane bieber i mean
2: so bieber's stats in those last it was two starts he went six innings he faced 22 hitters he only had four strikeouts so relatively low strikeout count Uh um given he went six innings but in those six innings four hits no walks one run four strikeouts like i get that you know There are deeper things here around his spin rate, his location, stuff like that. But the results were fine, and you know it was effectively a rehab assignment for him. Like I just, I think people are reading too much into something that isn't actually like that. Wasn't Shane Bieber coming back and trying to like pitch Cleveland to the playoffs? That wasn't Shane Bieber trying to read. That was just Shane Bieber getting on the mound, throwing some pitches. So I think with a full offseason, he'll be fine. A um, couple other – the one other sort of pitcher price I want to talk about is a guy you mentioned to me. And I was sort of like, eh, I think this price is fair. And then I look closer and eh, maybe I'm wrong about that. $4 Marcus Stroman.
1: What are your thoughts on Stro? I mean, 1% of your entire budget for a guy who was that good last year just seems crazy. And, you know, you brought up the strikeouts, which is obviously a huge component of, of the odd new points setting right and he's not a guy who gets a lot of strikeouts he's not a guy who's going to get a strikeout an inning and i understand that but he is a guy who's going to compile innings which is also super important in this format so right off the bat based on the price no question i am in on marcus And i think he was definitely brought to auction a little early i guess i mean uh, sort of like my mistake with garrett whitlock like he was brought so early that i don't think people were willing to go too much higher for a player who like we really know who he is and and it's totally fair to say he's good, but is he really going to be any better than he was last year? And I would say probably not, but he is reliable. And like when I see Eduardo Rodriguez go for nineteen twenty dollars $20, but Marcus, like that's another guy really doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. And Marcus Stroman goes for four. It just seems like a discrepancy. Maybe there's too much unknown. We don't know where he's going. Uh, he is a free agent. He's going to sign a monster contract somewhere. <laughs> but man, I, I, I don't know. I loved that move. I can't believe I didn't bid up to $5. Yeah,
2: I think, you know, I, I,
1: Intentionally
2: stayed out because I think when I look at his projection, I look at sort of the value. I when I calculate values, I I I don't think that that's that price is not higher or is not lower than what I project him to be worth. However, he put up 4.8 points per inning pitch last year, and a four dollar pitcher is like I mean he could be at like 4.2, 4.3, and he'd be worth four dollars. So, you know, he doesn't have the upside because he lacks the strikeouts. The la- the lack of upside also like it creates a floor issue for him because if he if the bat inflates, if the walks rise a little bit, like he could fall pretty far. But he's got a lot of room to fall off of where he was in 2021 and still be worth 4 bucks. So, yeah, I was I when I first saw that I was like, yeah, $4 Stroman that seems about right. And now I'm like, man, I think I missed the boat on that one. Um
1: Did he opt out? I can't remember in 2020? Because I'm not seeing any yes, stats. He did. He he, he, if you remember, he was hurt and he was coming back
2: okay. and he worked his way back. And it was like a weird situation where he like was very, very late to opt out because he basically worked his way all the way back to healthy and then decided not to pitch.
1: So then if you if you just count his last four or five seasons, he's made 32 starts in 2016, 33 in 2017. Must have had an injury in 2018 and then 32 in 2019. Skip 2020 and 33 in 2021. If, if you're going to give me an ERA of around three and a half and continue to go out every fifth day like he does, he's worth more than $4. Yeah, I agree.
2: So we got a couple other topics we want to cover, but we also got to get a quick word in from our sponsor. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back. We just spent a bunch of time talking through this mock auction that Pete and I are both participating in. We're going to have a lot more on that further in the off season because, like I said at the beginning of this, we're only about a quarter of the way through that. So by the time we record again, maybe we'll be, maybe we'll be done. Maybe we'll be close to done. We'll have we'll have more data for sure, uh, more interesting num- names and numbers, and and some more information to share with you. But there have been a bunch of signings. None of the big names, well, some of the big names, kind of. None of the big bats, right? We haven't seen Seager or Correa or any of those guys sign yet. Um, Mostly what we've seen has actually been pitchers. But there's some interesting signings here, and I think they're worth discussing. And I think the one to start with is um, the the biggest dollars and maybe in some ways the biggest surprise for me, which was Justin Verlander. Uh, Verlander signed with Houston. That's not a surprise. I sort of expected he'd go back. But he signed back with Houston for twenty five million dollars and a twenty five million dollar player option for a 38, 38 right? Thirty eight year old pitcher coming off of Tommy
1: John surgery. That's uh that's a contract, Pete. <laughs> that it it's like it's actually kind of crazy i mean the yankees offered him the same thing just not the second year not the option it was a one-year 25 million dollar deal i don't know if there was any other confirmed reports of teams offering him a contract but there were a lot of teams interested and it's kind of like the polar opposite of the clayton kershaw situation where he wasn't offered a qualifying offer if these teams are that interested and willing to pay that much money he must be okay and i can't remember where i was reading it if it was on twitter or bleacher report or something but apparently he can still hit 97 miles an hour and that's now Let's see where he's at in spring training when he gets a full ramp up. Justin Verlander was the number one player in fantasy just a few seasons ago. Not not pitcher, not starting pitcher, the number one player in standard 5 by 5 scoring just a few years ago. So if he is truly healthy, which everything would indicate that he is, he is going to shoot up draft boards. And this is a massive, massive, um, I guess, breaking news that that Justin Verlander could be back in the picture as an elite starting pitcher. Uh, And I'm in, I'm buying in with all this hype. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk all the time about like signals about what teams are
2: saying about players and stuff like that. And it's a lot of times I think it's just noise and it's hard. We're just, we're reading tea leaves and trying to guess what's going on. There's nothing to guess here, right? The Astros believe that Justin Verlander is an ace because they just dropped if they don't believe that, if they think that he might not be able to come all the way back, if they think he's going to struggle, if they think he might get hurt again, they just put $50 million in his pocket to not perform, which means that they truly believe that at 38, 39 years old, he's going to be good for the next two years. That either that $25 million player option next year is going to be worth it and they're going to get $50 million of value from him over two years, or that he's going to be so good that he's going to decline the option and hit the market again. So they're, uh, you know, this is a situation where it's like, I'm not going to trust my own analysis on how a guy is doing coming back from injury, but I'll trust the Astros. <laughs> if the Astros say he's good, then I, I'm all in. And I think this is super, super fascinating. Almost, it, it is more interesting to me for keeper leagues than it is for standard, for redraft. Because in redraft, like you said, he's going to start to shoot up draft boards. The price is going to be the price. Verlander's talked about like, He's like, you know, the Tom Brady of baseball and wants to pitch until he's 73 years old or something like that. It's
1: very dis, that is very disrespectful to Nelson Cruz. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) But he's, uh, I mean, Verlander right now, I'm going to try to pull this up
2: real quick and look at what, in in auto new leagues, what he costs. His average salary in auto new leagues right now is $5.58. Oh, wow. He is rostered in 94% of leagues. He is not getting cut in any of those leagues. If you can trade for him now, not only are you getting potentially a $5, $6, maybe in some leagues, $7, $8, $9 ace, at least the Astros think he's an ace. But if he actually bounces back like that and decides he's going to pitch till he's, let's say, 45 or something like that. You could be looking at Verlander anchoring your rotation for like 10 bucks for the next five years. So do I want to bet on him being good for the next five years? No. Right. But I don't have to at $6. At five, six bucks, like I can, if he's, if he is even a quarter of what he was before, he'll be worth $5 this year and $7 next year. And if he's what the Astros think he is, then he's, he's a huge steal. So... If you're listening and you're in a keeper league where you can go trade for Verlander in the off season, I would do it. Now is the time do it before we get to spring training before any more reports come out, like act now. Um, Hope that whoever you're making a trade with isn't also listening
1: because we just talked about trading him to you. (laughs) I do also think it's it's potentially a little telling. So if that's not enough, right, if it's not enough to be like, well, all right, teams were in on him and the Astros really like him, but the Astros really need him. He also signed before Robbie Ray. He signed before Kevin Gosman. He signed before Marcus Stroman. I think that's a little telling as well. Maybe in his camp, it's like get the money now, you know, before, you know, something gets uncovered. But I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's, oh, wow, this is this is the guy that teams want and then they'll if they don't get Verlander, they'll look to Ray. They'll look to Gosman. It's an aggressive statement to say about the reigning Cy Young that teams want Verlander more than Robbie Ray. But when you consider the dollars and the years, I think he was more appetizing, which I think again speaks to his health and and his upside heading into twenty twenty two.
2: Yeah, and, and I think you made the point before that there were multiple offers. The fact that there were multiple offers and at least another one over twenty million a year for the year, like it's not just the Astros who believe he's still an ace. There's other there's other teams feeling that way. So I'm. Yeah, I'm in. Let's jump and look at uh, some of the other signings, sort of the, I don't know if I'd say the other end of the spectrum, but from a real big short deal with high AAV for an established ace, Steve Matz got a four-year, $44 million contract from the St. Louis Cardinals. So this is, you know, the Astros paid big money over short term for an ace. The Cardinals are paying meh money, middling money over a slightly longer term for rotation fodder. I mean I, I, like, you know, I don't mean that in a, a negative way, right? I think you're talking about like a third or fourth starting pitcher, solid guy, but not a guy who's going to anchor your rotation. Any thoughts on Matt's? Does this does this signing
1: impact his fantasy value to you? Well, I, I do think he's in a better place to pitch, particularly because the Cardinals are the best fielding team in baseball, right? I mean, that's that obviously has some value there, but I think he's about as, as run of the mill as it gets, which can be a sneaky good thing in keeper leagues where it's like, you know, maybe you get him for three bucks and he's going to be a bargain at $3. And I don't think a lot of people are going to bid up on, on Steven Matz. And I hope I'm not revealing too much. By the time this airs, he's actually up for auction right now. So by the time this airs, he'll probably already be on a team. So it's not a big deal. But is it like huge news? No. I mean, speaking as a Red Sox fan, like there were rumors that he was kind of the backup plan for Erod, which I think is uh, as meh as I am on Erod, Stephen Mass would have been a step back. And I'm glad they didn't get four years, 44 million. But from a fantasy perspective, going to the National League, which will obviously have the DH eventually, but going to the Cardinals with such great fielding, um, pretty good division to pitch in, I think it's a slight upgrade for sure out of the AL East, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, getting out of the AL East, getting out of Toronto, which has been a pretty good hitter's park, um, getting to that elite defense. Bush Stadium is a good stadium to pitch in. It's a good defense, like you said. And the the NL Central, can anybody hit in the NL Central? I guess the the, the Reds can kind of hit.
1: Yeah, but they're probably losing Castellanos, and if they lose that anchor, I, I don't know. Yeah, so I, I mean... Yeah, it's it's a
2: it is. There there were not a lot of better landing spots for Matts, and so I, I'm with you that I don't think this. You know, he's not like a $15 pitcher now, but I do think he's much more interesting as sort of rotation filler than he was 24 hours ago before he signed. So I, I'm with you on that. A um, couple more pitcher signings: Anthony Disclafini. Going back to the Bay, uh, I thought they would jump at re-signing Gaussman, but they they started here. Thoughts on him? I mean, th- th- this year was an impressive year for him, sort of surprising in, in some ways that he finally got that break.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I think the breakout actually kind of made sense, right? Because he was pitching in the Reds and it was like, oh man, the homers are such an issue. If he could just get in a bigger park, get some better fielding behind him because the Reds are definitely not known for their fielding um and and get some good coaching you know he gets those three things he should be a better pitcher well he got those three things and he was a better pitcher so I'm very excited for him that he's back with the Giants like if I had him in a keeper league I'd be kind of breathing a sigh of relief I know there were rumors like the Angels were interested in stuff like that I think I would have been pretty mum on Anthony Desclafani if he left San Francisco but I think his skill set fits well there obviously you know like I said great coaching um, so I, I mean, on Desclafani, I, I don't think, you know, to, to use your reference for Matt's there, and he's a better pitcher than Steven Matt's. I don't think Desclafani is all of a sudden like a 15 to $20 pitcher, but I'm pretty happy if I have him at a reasonable price, I think he's going to be effective. And I do find, you know, just because he brought it up, the Gossman market kind of interesting. It, it, if you just read Twitter, he's anywhere from like Bad to like the top pitcher on the market. And, and I, I, I'm I very curious to see where he ends up in the contract. But to bring it back to, to Desclafani, I'm not surprised the Giants win for him. The cheaper option, and he's clearly a good fit.
2: Yeah, and I, this is another case where there's some team signal here that I find interesting, which is for a guy who's been a little bit up and down, uh, hasn't always thrown a ton of innings, the the fact that the Giants who have done The Giants have done as good a job of of anybody of identifying veterans who are capable of more and are or are able to return to form or something like that. The fact that they looked at him and thought not only was he good this year, not only do we think we can help him out, but like he's worth a multi year contract right now Uh, because it was was it three years thirty six million, three years thirty million, something like that. It was something like that. It was very reasonable. and it, you know the fact that just it's not that it's so expensive. It just was three or thirty-six million dollar contract. So twelve million a year, slightly more AAV than Matt's got. It's not a crazy number, but it is the fact that they committed to him for three years that I think is just telling. It, it tells you something about what they think of him as a pitcher. I don't think the market for for. Discofini was so crazy that like they had to give him a third year. They weren't going to get him back kind of thing. I think they just, that's what they thought he was worth. So
1: I, I really like that one. I, I think it's good for his value. For Giants pitchers, Chad, do you, how much do you, how much stock do you put into the fact that Buster Posey retired?
2: Well, I mean, Posey wasn't there last year. Like he was there for 21, but he wasn't there for the 20 season. And their pitching was, sure. was still good. So does it hurt? Yeah, I mean, it hurts. It should hurt, right? He's he's excellent behind the plate. Uh, he's a good framer, but I don't know. I, I, it's possible, like maybe Joey Bart's terrible, and so the 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 change is just going to be dramatic. But I'm not that worried about it. I also think, like, I I'm more. I think their coaching matters more than Posey does. I'll, I'll put it that way. They've they've seemed to do such a good job getting the most out of their players at, at every part of the diamond, but particularly their pitchers. And so that's that to me is the bigger piece of this than than Posey leaving.
1: I'm glad you said that because I think when we start factoring in things like that, I think overthinking comes into play. And at the end of the day, Desclafani is still at Oracle Park, and I think he's he's going to be pretty good.
2: So one other starting pitcher that made a move that is that is interesting. I don't know. I don't know how to think about this one. Noah Syndergaard. Thor is going west. He is signed with the Angels. It was a one-year $21 million deal. I'll start by saying, like, I find this deal kind of weird because it's a lot of money tied up in a one-year deal for a guy who, to me, his focus should really be on like, putting together a solid enough year to get back on the free agent market next year and keeping himself healthy. And the angels now have a contract that pays him to basically churn out as many innings as he can for them this year. And it, I don't know, Keith Law wrote an article about this at the athletic that is worth looking at, but it basically talks about the misaligned incentives between, between Thor and the angels. And it, it concerns me a little bit, but not in a major way and doesn't have a major impact on my like fantasy thinking. It's just sort of more from a business perspective, almost a weird thing, but leaving the Mets going to the angels from a pitcher health perspective, it feels like out of the frying pan and into the fire. But (laughs) what do you think, Pete? Uh,
1: I'm, I'm not really interested in Syndergaard. First of all, the track record for guys who have had Tommy John surgery twice is, is very gloomy. Um, He's a player who like, it's easy to forget that, in 2019, he threw almost 200 innings, and I'm sure a lot of that was hurt, but he made 32 starts, and he wasn't great. I mean, it was an ERA of 4.28. It was not, I believe. A, okay, he had 202 strikeouts in 197 innings. It was a strikeout an inning, and now you can, see, you can chalk that up to the UCL. Maybe he was pitching hurt, whatever the case may be, but like... I don't know. His track record of being elite is really thin. So I'm going to have to really like the price to be in on Noah Syndergaard, especially since he's going to a team that just seems to make horrible decision after horrible decision as it relates to starting pitchers like that matters to me. You can't have such a bad track record of picking free agents and, 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 and taking on pitchers and. And expect me to just be like, oh, well, it's Noah Syndergaard. For some reason, I think he's going to be great now after not pitching last year and having two Tommy Johnsters. I just don't think that's a likely situation. I think it's going to be, you know, we'll, we'll be lucky to get 130 innings. And if they are elite 130 innings, they probably won't be on any of my teams. But I find that very unlikely. So I'm going to have to love the price to be in on Syndergaard.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I'm it's. It, I, I can't think of a lot of landing spots that. I feel worse about for him. Like and maybe that's not fair, but it's the truth. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. Like, it's just, you would have loved to see him go somewhere with a team that has a history of getting the most out of pitchers, a history of keeping pitchers healthy. And the angels are just the exact opposite of that. The exact opposite. And I, I don't know. It's it, it's part of the reason it seems like a weird signing to me for him cuz like I'm trying to put myself in his shoes and imagine myself like I'm coming off this, you know, unimpressive stretch. I've been injured. I'm trying to get healthy. I'm signing a 1-year deal very specifically because I want to because I want to go out there next year. Like if I'm him, I want to go out next year and get a 5-year 125 million dollar deal. Right? That's what that's my goal here. And it, I don't know. I mean, I find it hard to believe the Angels were his best choice for that, which makes me think he signed because the Angels offered the most money, which then makes me more nervous that maybe he doesn't even believe he can get healthy and get right. Like, it's just a spiral in a bad direction of of issues that, I don't know. I, I, I don't love it. Um, I hope I'm wrong because he is an electric pitcher when he's right, and it's fun to watch him when he's right, and so I hope that he's a... I hope he gets it back. I on top of that, if he gets it back and Rendon gets healthy, Trout stays healthy, Otani does his thing, like that's a fun team. But that's a very fun team. Man, I don't I don't have a lot of confidence in that.
1: I think I might be wrong. Am I wrong in that Noah Syndergaard has had two Tommy John surgeries? Oh, I don't know. I just took you at your word. Sure. <laughs> Chad, you whatever, should know right now. That's Pete says, I just move. take his gospel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Let's
1: see. I'm, I'm actually not sure now if he has actually had uh, Tommy John surgery twice. For some reason, I thought he did. But uh, I mean, look, bottom line, whether he has or he hasn't, this is not a guy who's been able to stay on the mound for prolonged periods of time. So I, it, obviously, if it's only one Tommy John, all of a sudden my interest level maybe went up a little bit, but still not to the point where I am super duper interested. I think he only had it in 2020. I think I was wrong on that one. Yeah. So there was. Regardless, I think it's his
2: his history has not been good with health. Even if that's his only Tommy John, it's not like he's been. You know, it Verlander is like the great counterpoint here. Right, here's two pitchers, both coming off Tommy John, both getting over twenty million dollars on a on a one year deal. Although Verlander also got that player option. Verlander has been a workhorse for years, right? So. You feel like if he comes, you know, it's one Tommy John. And if he comes back, this is what he's coming back to. Syndergaard, that just hasn't been true. So you don't have that track record behind him anyways. But one other signing we wanted to talk about before we we wrap up, and that is another Angel signing. Aaron Loop, they are raiding the Mets pitching staff, which is, (laughs) if you're going to raid the Mets pitching staff and not come away with Jacob deGrom, I'm not sure what you're doing. But Loop was actually, he was excellent last year in the pen. He's a guy who has sort of broken out later in his career as a reliever. Is there any fa- anything to look at from a fantasy perspective here?
1: Well, the thing to look at is the market for Rezel Iglesias. I don't know if there's any news that like, you know, the Angels are definitely out on him or that he's going for sure somewhere else or anything like that. Obviously, if if he does return to the Angels, well, there goes all of Aaron Loop's value, right? I wouldn't really want him anywhere uh, To to be frank about it. With that said, if if Iglesias does not return, then there's potentially some interest in loop if he is able to lock down that job. But I would say he doesn't really profile as your typical closer. Um, first of all, his strand rate last year was out of control. He had an 86% strand rate for the Mets. That definitely contributed um, to his his overall successful numbers. If you, you know, he still had a good FIP. Uh, he still had a good XFIP, but... I, they were much higher than his 0.95 ERA. So like th- there's definitely some regression in place factor in that he's 33 years old and he's barely a strikeout per inning. Like he has to have the job for me to have any interest at all. Like I need a guarantee. I need a manager. Who's the manager there? My uh, Joe Madden. Yeah. I need him to straight up just say like Aaron loop is the angels closer for 2022. If he says that, okay, I have some interest in the later rounds. Otherwise, no. I think that's right. I think
2: there is a possibility he's a closer. Job certainly seems like it's up for grabs. And if he gets it, I'd I'd be interested. Um in auto new, I mean, you know, in, in most keeper leagues, he's not, even if he even if Madden said right now that he's the closer, in most keeper leagues, I'm not sure he's a guy that I'm like rushing out to add. In auto new leagues, especially five by five leagues where closers are at a premium, I think it could be worth speculating on him now. Just because maybe you get him, at, you know, he's probably very cheap if he's available. And maybe you get him at a real good price and get lucky. And if, you know, I, I think we will know by the time the keeper deadline rolls around in January, if if they've re-signed Iglesias, if they've gone out and traded for Kimbrel, if they've done, like, if they've made a big move for a closer, we'll know it. And so you'll have some time to make that decision. And honestly, he's low priced enough that even if we hit January 31st and it's like, oh, he might be the closer, he might not be the closer. If you hold him through spring training and opening day rolls around and he's not the closer, you cut him and you move on and you haven't really cost yourself anything. You're going to speculate on a cheap reliever like that anyways. He's not a bad one to speculate on. So I could see going out and getting him in a deeper league where there's enough keepers that you don't have to stress about it. You're talking about a league where you're keeping three, five, even seven or eight. Like, no,
1: no way. Wait and see what happens. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think even at this point, there are other it like if you were drafting right now and you're looking like, oh, wow, okay, it looks like as of right now, Aaron Loop is the closer. I think there's guys who would be available at that point that I'd I'd rather gamble on, like, you know, Emilio Pagan or something taking the job in San Diego. Like, I, I have more interest there. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I think that, that, that's, and Pagan is an
2: interesting one. We should talk about him on a future episode. So uh, with that though, I think we've covered enough for today. We'll be back in a couple weeks. We'll have more updates on this mock draft. We'll probably have some more reactions to signings because I'm sure there will be a little bit more action in the next week. Uh, hopefully when we're back with you in two weeks, it won't be in the middle of a lockout, uh, but I have a bad feeling it will be. So we'll have to see. Fingers crossed for that one. Thanks for listening. A reminder to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you're doing, you're subscribing to podcasts. Leave ratings and reviews. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us or reach out to us on Twitter at KeepOrCut. You can hit me up at Chad Young on Twitter. Pete is on Twitter at PeteBBaseball. If there's stuff you want to discover, players you want us to talk about, any information you're looking for about Keeper Leagues, you know where to find us. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening.